Welcome to Real Crime NYC, where you'll hear real New York City crime stories told by real New York City cops. I'm Pat. Join Chris, Bill, and I for today's episode, where we'll discuss the case of an eight-year-old boy who vanished from a Brooklyn street and the frantic search that followed. We'll give you the facts and insights into this investigation and the detectives race against time to find one of society's most vulnerable victims. This case was extremely traumatic for the neighborhood where it happened, for all of the police officers involved, and in fact, for all of New York City. What you're about to hear might not be for everybody. For those of you familiar with our podcast, this is the point where you usually hear the line, okay, guys, what do you got? Not today. This one's going to take a little explanation first. You see, it starts in the Hasidic Jewish community of Borough Park, Brooklyn. The Hasidic community is an insular community made up of Orthodox Jews whose roots are in Eastern Europe. They're easily recognizable by the modest dress of their women, black hats, dark suits, and white shirts for the men. The men usually also wear beards and side locks, or what they call payas. And on holidays or special occasions, or even the Sabbath, you'll see a lot of the men wearing very large beaver fur hats. They stand out, to say the least. They're almost a society within a society. They're very family-oriented, in my experience, and they're narrowly focused on their religion. As a matter of fact, the word Hasidic comes from the root Hasid, which means pious. At the top of their social structure is a, what they call a Rebbe, and he's the religious and political authority within their society. They have their own school system. They have their own emergency medical response. You may hear us refer to it as Hatzola which loose translation is rescue or relief. And they also have their own safety patrol. And that's important to this story. The safety patrol works very closely with local law enforcement, in this case, the NYPD. And they play a big role in this case. You may hear us refer to them as shamrim. That's the loose translation for that is guards or guardians. And they're basically the eyes and ears of the police. Pat, let me paint the picture, because many of the listeners are from outside the New York area and may not be familiar with the Hasidic community in Borough Park. So the best way for me to do it would be to explain my first experiences with the Borough Park community as a rookie cop. I'm just out of the academy. It's a Friday night, way back when, and usually on a Friday, we'd be working on Bay Ridge and 86th Street, which is where the movie Saturday Night Fever was shot. And on 86th and 3rd on a Friday night, lots of people going out to dance clubs and bars. Trans Ams, Monte Carlos were cruising up and down the avenues. It was the place to be, especially if you were young. So here we all are at roll call, hair comb nice, wearing a fitted uniform shirt, ready to work this Friday night in Bay Ridge, when the sergeant tells us, you'll be assigned to Borough Park tonight because they have a rash of car break-ins and they need a uniform presence there. So I say, Borough Park, where's that? So we're in a van on our way to Borough Park. So on the way to Borough Park, you pass Park Slope, which is a yuppie community. Then you have Sunset Park, which is a Mexican-Puerto Rican community, and on 8th Avenue, you have an Asian community. Then if you go towards the Bay Ridge area on 5th Avenue, you'll have a Middle Eastern community. The regular melting pot. Yeah, yeah. It's a cultural melting pot, as I learned passing through the different neighborhoods. And then you hit 13th Avenue, which is a business area. So you have your typical stores, schools, restaurants, synagogues. It's a busy area with people walking around. And when I get there, I see men dressed in long black coats with black hats and there's like fur around the hats with curls, the payos. Women were dressed very conservatively with their body covered in long sleeve shirts and long skirts. 
So later in the day, as the sun's going down, I see people are moving much more in a hurry. They were trying to get to wherever they were going a lot quicker. And I come to learn that it's Shabbos, it's Friday. In the Hasidic religious community, they had to get home before sundown, where they'll pray, rest, and spend time with their family. It's their Sabbath. Yeah, Sabbath. Yep, when they get home by sundown. And I didn't know that at the time. Once the sun sets, the neighborhood's really quiet. No one's on the streets, the stores are closed. There's nobody out except for the rookie cops that were sent there that night for the rash of car break-ins. At some point, a gentleman comes over to me, and he's dressed in a long coat. He has the hat on, and he says, Officer, can you help me? There's a problem with my appliance. It won't go off. At the time, I didn't realize they can't use electric, electric-type devices because it's a time for prayer. So I go into his house, and I see his family. They're all there. They're very, very nice, very respectful to me. And his kids are looking at me, and they're staring in a way. They're looking at my uniform. They're looking at my gun belt. They see the flashlight on there. They see the handcuffs, my nightstick, the holster. They're very inquisitive kids, extremely nice. And when I left, I realized I learned a lot that day about the culture I had no idea about. I learned a lot about Borough Park. I learned a lot about the Hasidic community. And my eyes were open that day to a world I never even knew existed. So, yeah, Bill, that's quite a common experience for a lot of New York City cops who work in, uh, in Brooklyn or in areas where there's a, an Orthodox Jewish community. On the Sabbath, on a Friday, they really don't uh, use money. They don't use uh, electronics. Uh, some of them will go so far as to not even carry a package outside of their home once the Sabbath begins. So a lot of times they'll ask a police officer who they see to assist them, turn the light on for me or turn the stove off for me or uh, just a, a little thing. And it's something that a cop could do that's kind of refreshing to help someone in such a small way. And a lot of times they'll, they'll give you an apple or an orange or just a token of their appreciation for helping them out to uh, enjoy their traditions. And it's not just about praying on Friday night. You'll see a lot of times the men are bringing home flowers for the family table. It's a chance for the whole family to be together and have a dinner together every week, once a week. So I think it's a nice tradition, and it's uh, more important than that. It's their religion, and they're very, very focused on their religion. You'll also notice that the members of this community speak Yiddish. But most of them speak English, too, and sometimes within the same conversation, they'll flip and flop back and forth between Yiddish and English, and sometimes it's just an amalgamation of the two. You guys, I think one of the most important things about this case, one of the most ironic things, is that the community is very close-knit. Uh, they tend not to let outsiders in to their community. They tend to just keep with the, their their own uh, religion, even as far as police services and uh, EMS services. They have their own uh, EMS. They have their own uh, safety patrol that that polices Brooklyn. They're very to themselves, uh, and they really only uh, entrust in uh, other members of the Hasidic community. And that uh, that kind of gets to where we're, we're going to speak about the case today. It was Monday, July 11th. 2011. It was a hot, sunny summer morning, about 90 degrees. And uh, this was the first day that he uh, was going to uh, uh, walk home from school by himself. He woke up that morning. He uh, took the bus to school. The bus picked him up in front of his house, just like it did every other day. It was for uh, summer camp school. And the bus took him to school. He, it was a normal day at school for him. He uh, Played with the other children. They prayed and they were taught just like just like every other day uh, they went to summer camp. But the only difference today, at the end of the day, he was going to walk home by himself. 
the day before him and his parents had a predetermined route that he was going to take. Uh, and he, he knew what the route was on the way home from school. He uh, got a little confused. He must have missed a turn. And instead of following the route, he ended up on uh, 15th Avenue. Chris, just going back a little bit, this is an eight-year-old. This is a community that everyone knows each other. They have their own uh, security force. They have their own ambulance. This mom, the day before, goes and walks this little boy the route of this day camp school. This was his first time walking home by himself, right? Yeah, because the day before, she's walking him through the route that he would take by himself. So it's a safe neighborhood. It's something that probably at eight, nine years old, he was just about to turn nine in July, that, you know, this is what they would do. So it's not something out of the ordinary to do in this neighborhood that's a safe neighborhood. Hey, every one of us has at one time or another in our lives had that first time where we walked home from school alone, right? This is not something uh, unique to that neighborhood. And this was going to be his first day uh, doing that. The irony of it is that Chris is describing his first day. He gets picked up in the morning by the bus and then walking home. Chris, just that route that he's walking home, I mean, how far is it from the school to his house? I, I don't think it's that far. No, it's only a couple of blocks. Right. And it's what time is it? About five o'clock at night? It's about 5.05 p.m. when he was caught on the first surveillance camera walking home. Right. And it's it's July, so it's still light out. It's not dark. Everybody's there. School buses are going by. The neighborhood people from the stores are out. So there's there's nothing that would lead anyone to have any concern about this boy going from school, day camp school, to his house. I mean, I don't think we could stress it enough. It is a very close-knit community, and they do look out for one another. So there would be no reason to think that there was any reason why this Young boy shouldn't walk home from school on his own. How did we even become aware that we had a missing eight-year-old boy? It was about 5.30 that night, and the little boy's mother was on the corner of 50th Street and 13th Avenue, where, he, where they agreed to meet up, um, and uh, he never showed up. So after about a half an hour of waiting for him, she called the Shaman Patrol. That's their, uh, their little safety patrol in Borough Park, Brooklyn, it's uh, not uncommon to call the safety patrol, being that they're close to the community and they usually stay within themselves. Uh, and the safety patrol responded. Uh, the safety patrol is made up of uh, many Hasidic volunteers and they service their own community. They handle things like uh, aided cases, uh, missing children, anything that is uh, doesn't require immediate response of the police. And the safety patrol took over. They wound up searching the area for about two hours. Uh, they canvassed all Borough Park, Brooklyn, for about two hours looking for the little boy, and they were unsuccessful. And this is in, back in 2011. So this is like people now listening to this, they're thinking there's all these apps out there with like the Next Door Neighbor app where everyone gets on these apps and they kind of go back and forth. Hey, this is going on in the area or this happened. And everyone instantaneously knows what's going on. So this is before that, where Shamram was kind of ahead of the ball with, with this. So they had their ways of reaching out to people in the community and ways of reaching out to each other. We need to find this little missing boy. And they they mobilized. They were, they were so efficient way back then without social media and all the technology that we have today. I don't even know if there was a smartphone that we have with all these different apps on there. If there was... It was probably very limited number of apps that didn't offer you the opportunity that mobilizing people, contacting people, just really, it was so efficient. So they were on the ball right away when the mom 
notify them. My son is missing. Yeah, they have their own radio communication system where uh, they talk to each other via radios like like the police would, and they monitor it 24-7. So even when they're home, guys would know there's there's an emergency, and they would respond from home. They have lights and sirens. They would get there right, right away. They really take care of their own, and the search started immediately. Yeah, so the safety patrol, they really were ahead of the game at that point in time. They would put out an email blast to everybody they know, letting them know that one of the community is missing. And just by word of mouth, they're so close-knit, everybody in that community would be looking for this young child. But just in general, uh, I found that people that don't know them may, may think they're, they're a little backwards because their traditions are old-fashioned, but they're not. They're very technologically savvy, and uh, they use computers, they use the internet very, very efficiently which they did in this case. Yeah, so um, so after about two hours of searching for him, they were unsuccessful and they notified the uh, the local precinct. Uh, and then the, the NYPD's search began. Chris, when they're notifying the local police, they usually have a contact, like in a 6-6 precinct, they have different liaisons in, in the 6-6. And right away, the Shamram are not successful in finding this young boy. Local police right away know you can't find an eight-year-old boy. It's in Borough Park. There's something wrong. Shaman probably reached out to all the businesses already. They reached out to all the people that they know. They're checking with this young boy's family, relatives, checking with the school, the daycare center. And right away, they know there's a problem. So the panic buttons hit. They're mobilizing uniformed patrol officers to the neighborhood. We have a missing eight-year-old Hasidic boy, and nobody knows where he is. There's a problem. Yeah, that's something in the NYPD that we call a special category missing person. It's not like on TV where, you know, you go to report a missing person and they tell you, oh, you have to wait 24 hours. If it's a child, you know, like under 10 or 11, if it's someone who's mentally incapacitated, or if there's just absolutely no explanation for a person to be missing, the NYPD will mobilize a lot of resources, especially for an eight-year-old boy to try to locate that person immediately upon being notified. Special category missing person is what we call it. Now, now you have the community unrest. Uh, the community is not at ease, and that exacerbates the problems for the police department now. Yeah, so just a, a little anecdote. Uh, in, in years of experience, any cop knows this. When you have a special category missing person, or any missing person for that matter, but especially a child, the first place you're going to look the child's house. A lot of times people will report a child missing. And when someone who doesn't live there searches the house, you'll find the kid sitting in a closet or in a cupboard under the sink. And it's someplace that the family would never think to look for him. You know, sometimes they go in there playing, they fall asleep. And next thing you know, you have a missing person. So a lot of times these things turn out, you know, well, everybody uh, has a good laugh and uh, the child returns safely. And then you have the other extreme where sometimes they don't turn out so well, so well and you have every parent's nightmare. So with this case, the night that this boy went missing, they're looking at that school and literally every crevice, every hallway, every alleyway, every sewer, rooftops, every avenue that they could search, they're searching to see where this boy could be. On the cars, in any wooded area, anywhere that he could be. Whether it was by accident or intentional, they have that in their mind. And they did that. They did it extensively on this night. You have the Shamram, where they mobilized hundreds of people. And then you have the NYPD that have the experience of doing these searches. You're talking canine dogs. 
you're talking lighting equipment, any special equipment, helicopters with the uh, heat sensing equipment that they have on helicopters to look in any uh, parks or fields. They're certain infrared. The infrared, yeah. The, they're using every modern technology that they have to search to find this boy. And they did it. They did it that night. And Well, talking about technology, there had to have been a video canvas, right? I mean, right now there's a video on just about every building in Borough Park. But back then, there was a lot less. But there was still a lot of videos out there. So I'm assuming one of the first steps that was taken was to send detectives out and start looking at video. Although the shaman would have been way ahead of them and probably would have been looking at those videos before the detectives even arrived. Yeah, you have uh, multiple things going on at once. You have the patrol borough doing the uh, doing the, the foot searches and doing the car searches. You have the detective borough that's dumping the video. They're looking at uh, the investigative side of it while the patrol people are on boots on the ground doing the legwork. You have Special Operations Division who does all the specialty, like you're saying, the canine, uh, the aviation unit, the infrared, things like that. Um, they'll even have a bloodhound. They'll uh, they'll get an article of clothing from the kid's draw, and um, they'll have the dog sniff it, see if he could pick up a scent in the neighborhood and, and track. These are all going on simultaneously, different parts of the agency doing different things, doing all-out blitz to trying to find this child. So you, imagine all of these resources are there. All of these things are going on. You have police officers searching the streets, walking up and down stairwells and buildings, checking rooftops, checking basements, checking parks, you know, the sides of highway, any place this child could possibly be. All of this is going on at the same time. You have detectives looking for video, interviewing possible witnesses. All of this is going on at the same time. The Shyamran Patrol is out there on every street looking for this kid. Yet we're still not finding this missing boy. Imagine what those parents are thinking right now. As the night goes on, they start developing clues. And what they do find is this boy left school at 5.05 at night. And they see it on a camera. And then they start tracking that camera in different directions. And then they see at 5.20 at night, there's a locksmith on 15th Avenue and 44th Street. And they're checking his camera. And they see the little boy on that camera. Five minutes later, they track it. 44th Street, between 16th and 17th Avenue, there's a synagogue. And lo and behold, the boy's still walking. So we know 525, he's safe. Then at 529, we pick him up at 17th Avenue and Day Hill Road. It's a private residence. It's a camera on the outside. Three minutes later, Day Hill Road and 18th Avenue. We see him. And for some reason, he stops. Unknown. We don't know why he stopped. But he stops at that corner. So at this point, uh, he's he's walking around in a circle. Uh, this poor kid is trying to figure out how he can meet up with his mother. He's a little confused. He's uh, trying to figure out, should he go back the way he came? Uh, or should he uh, continue forward? And his first day that he's walking home, as fate would have it, there's a brown Honda on the corner of 18th Avenue. Our eight-year-old and this man that we see on a camera brown honda and we see the two of them interact that's what law enforcement see that night and that's where i think everybody when they see that they realize this little boy's in trouble describe that interaction to us bill i mean what can you see on the video is there anything unusual about the way the two of them are interacting or just describe it to us visually so our listeners can imagine it this man sitting in his 
Honda and you see the little boy kind of looking around as if he's lost. And for some reason, I guess he, it's a very safe neighborhood. And when this man goes over to that little boy, he's trusting of a stranger. See them talking. And it was yeah, they talk for about seven minutes. Uh, they've seen my video talking for about seven minutes uh, to a, a, another Hasidic man who's probably in his 30s. Uh, and you could see the, the Hasidic man is uh, trying to make the kid feel comfortable. Uh, and uh, after about seven minutes, uh, the kid is comfortable enough. Again, the tight knit community. He's entrusting in this man to help him because he, he's. He's an innocent eight-year-old. He has no reason to, to think anything other than that this, this adult is going to help him. Yeah, 100%. He thinks the man's going to help him. And the man tells him, come in my car and I'll, uh, I'll, I'll get you to your mother. Uh, so once he gets into his car, um, there's a reason why we don't find him with all these resources uh, at the scene, searching and all the investigative steps being taken, uh, with all these hundreds of Shamrock Patrol, New York City Police Department members, because... The little boy's not in Brooklyn after a while. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Real Crime NYC. Please join us for the next episode where you'll find out what happened to our missing eight-year-old boy in Borough Park, Brooklyn. You could find Real Crime NYC on Spotify, Apple, Facebook, or wherever you get your podcast. Please hit subscribe for free access to the most up-to-date episodes of Real Crime NYC. I'm Pat. I'm Chris. And I'm Bill. We'll see you when we see you.